Hi, welcome to More Like the Reentry podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, reform, and advocacy. I'm your host, Vinkedia Gardner. Thank you for joining me today. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about children with incarcerated parents. And specifically, we're going to be talking about how to better serve um, children with incarcerated parents and specifically looking at their needs and what we can do as community members, practitioners, teachers um, within policy and practice uh, to better address the needs of children with incarcerated parents. So for today's episode, I have, um, once again, as always, an expert that can talk in this area and discuss the needs for which the topic is for today. So with me today is Dr. Emily Brown, and Dr. Brown is an assistant professor of counseling and associate, wait, I said that wrong apologize. She is an assistant professor of counseling and the associate department chair in the College of Education at the University of Missouri in St. Louis. She has a PhD in counselor education, which she received from the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and she holds credentials um, as a licensed profession licensed professional counselor, a registered play therapist supervisor, and a national certified counselor. Dr. Brown's background includes working with children and their families as an elementary school counselor and mental health counselor. Her research focuses on counseling children who have experienced loss, crisis, or trauma with a particular focus on children of incarcerated parents. So I really think she will be able to explain to us these needs and give us a thorough description of how we can address these needs um, and really speak to the points of what we'll be talking about today. So I really do thank you, Dr. Brown, for being on our episode today. And yeah, um, I'll allow you to say anything that you want to say or add to the conversation. I think you captured it. So yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yes, ma'am. It's always a pleasure to have people on here to discuss these topics as these are very important topics, especially when it comes to just reentry or just incar- incarceration in general. And uh, children specifically, I think, are a particular group when we're talking about people who are involved in the justice system that are kind of neglected in as far as of like topics related. Um, because children also face a host of challenges when they experience um, a parent that's incarcerated or going through the carceral system in some fashion. So I think one of the things that I, to start the conversation off, is to kind of talk about some of these trends that we see in incarceration when it comes to children with incarcerated parents. And I guess essentially what I'm asking here is what, how often are we seeing children having parents that are incarcerated or involved in the justice system? Yeah, so the research in this area um, is sometimes somewhat sparse, and I think that goes to what you were saying earlier about where we don't always talk about the kids. And so um, I'm going to give you some numbers and talk about this today, and I I just want to acknowledge that we need to know more. Um, So there was some research done in 1985, and at that time, they said one in 125 children had a parent in prison. When we talk about mass incarceration, by 2010, it was one in 28 children. 
So that is a huge increase in the number of children with parents in prison in the same way that we're looking at just this increase in the mass incarceration. Um, and that one in 28, that's really looked at as the number of children with a parent in prison at the moment. But we know that the, you know, the involvement in the criminal justice system is so much bigger. And, um, and so really, some of the numbers have been one in 14 children um, will live with an incarcerated parent by the time they're 18. So that's 6.9% of children. And really that's talked about as an underestimate because there are a lot of kids that never actually live with the, you know, the, it's a non-residential parent for them. Um, and so, you know, I, I've seen some estimates as high as 10 million children. Um, but the number I usually go with is 5 million children, one in 14. Um, and that is, that's really based on a national sample um, from the National Survey of Children's Health. But that was also about 10 years ago. And I, I knew coming onto this podcast, I was looking for more recent numbers. And that's really about the last that I saw. Um, and so that, that's the big picture. Um, but then when you start to break it down, again, mirroring mass, you know, mass incarceration, we see the disparities in that. Because if it's one of 14 children living that will live with an incarcerated parent by the time they're 18, for um, just racially, there's such disparity. For white children, it's about 6%. For black children, it's 11.5%. Um, for Hispanic or Latino children, it's 6.4%. Um, and then we see the intersection of poverty as well. Um, you know, the 12.5%, uh, you know, are, are the, the most um, low socioeconomic group. Um, and then also by age, most of the time that when a child has an incarcerated parent, it happens before the child is nine years old. So you really see these early developmental years um, when we're really seeing, uh, you know, often that first um, incarceration. And then we think about how that impacts. Also, children in rural areas are more likely to have incarcerated parents than children in metropolitan areas. And so I think that, right, like that that may not be always how it's talked about or looked at, um, but that's the reality. Um, and there often it's, it's connected to the opioid crisis and drug offenses and things like that. So um, so it's, it's, a, it's a big problem. You know, if one in 14 children have an incarcerated parent that, you know, for many classrooms, that may be, you know, two kids in that class that are going to experience this. And that's nationally, we know that in a lot of areas, it's going to be so many more. And one of the things that I really like that you talked about at the very beginning um, is that distinction between actually having a parent that's currently incarcerated and having a parent that is just involved in the justice system in general. Because I think a lot of the times we, when we see these numbers, we don't consider the people that are just involved in the justice system on, you know, whether it's just they've just been arrested, they may not actually be incarcerated in a prison um, or they're just on probation or on parole or some sort. And we're not considering those individuals. So one in 14, like you said, that's two. If you have a class of 28, that's two kids in the classroom. And not, not telling how many kids in the whole school that are um, experiencing this. So, and I really like that you talked about the different factors that can kind of contribute to making it, I guess, like more likely for them to experience um, parental incarceration. And you mentioned some things like race. You mentioned some things um, as related to like social class or even just environment. 
of where someone lives at. And I really like that context that you're building on um, by talking about those different variables. And is there any other contextual things that we need to be considering when we're talking about trends as it relates to, you know, children with incarcerated parents? Yeah, the other thing I want to mention is just, again, when we think about mass incarceration and we're looking at rates and trends, um, is how much um, more often now females are getting incarcerated. And there have been some, some studies in looking that like 80% of women entering jail have children. Um, and so when we think about that, you know, it, it is, um, again, a, another way that we think about the way this is going to impact families and kids that we'll talk more about today. Um, but kids that have mothers in prison are also more likely to enter the foster care system. Um, and so there, there have been some, you know, statistics that looked at like 11% of kids entering or, or kids with mothers in prison are in foster care. Um, about 13% of kids in foster care have a parent, um, you know, or enter it because of incarcerated parents. Um, and we know that that, again, doesn't capture the ones that, you know, have been with other caregivers before they enter the system or kind of the in and out. Um, and so when we're thinking, you know, again, if we're looking at like mental health and thinking about trauma and all the other things, um, having a parent in prison also connects you with other factors, like potentially entering into the child welfare system, which can be very traumatic as well, or, you know, having lived in a home where there has potentially been other um, exposure to domestic violence or to, um, you know, uh, even the you know substance use of a parent, things like that. And so there can be just a lot of these contextual factors when we're looking at the kids that they may have lived with prior to incarceration or that may really change their circumstances once incarceration happens. I think that's an interesting point that you bring up because I will say in the recent research that I have done, I have seen that more women the rate of women being incarcerated, like you said, is increasing significantly. We're seeing a lot more women that are behind bars that are involved in the justice system. And I don't think we're also paying attention to the fact that, like you said, a lot of these women have children. And what that does to a child, especially since we know we can probably assume that women are the primary caregivers of these children, and I guess that leads us into our next part of the conversation of just talking about, and whether it relates to the mother being gone or the father being gone, gone. but what experiences do children with incarcerated parents generally have? What, what does it look like for them? Yeah, so in a lot of the research that I've looked at and done, I've kind of been able to see maybe three common trends that I think are there for a lot of kids. And so the way that I kind of group them and think about them, the first is just that there's often a really significant change in relationships. And so, you know, that may be a change in caregiver, right? It may be starting to live with a different relative when this happens. Um, but, you know, regardless of, of who you're kind of living with, there's, there's going to be a change in that relationship with the parent that's in prison. Um, you know, I can't just go see them anytime I want. I can't go hug them whenever I want, right? Like there, there's a change in contact, um, maybe the frequency of contact, maybe especially the, the physical contact that happens. Um, there was 
um, you know, some research that 59% of parents in state prisons and 45% of parents in federal prisons have not seen their children at all since incarceration. Um, when there is contact, it's more likely to be a letter um, than a phone call and, and you know, and hearing that voice um, and is a lot, often not as frequent. So just that change in contact is going to impact the, the relational dynamics in a family, but also just the children's um, development and, and thinking about who's there for them, who's really, you know, in my corner that I can trust. Um, and, you know, with that change in like relationships and family connection, um, oftentimes the parent that they are living with or the caregiver they are living with has additional stress on them, um, you know, and they may be grieving their own changes in their relationships, right? Um, they may be angry at the person for what happened and no longer being there for them. They may feel that sense of betrayal. And so the caregiver often becomes a gatekeeper for the child about whether they're gonna be able to talk to or see the parent that's in prison. Um, and so just all of that, right? The relational dynamics in families is something that would, would need to be thought about and addressed. Um, another big factor or group of issues that happens for kids um, when they have a parent in prison is just the change in family stability. And so again, if now you have a parent that is the primary caregiver or, or the often the primary financial provider, right? There's a lot of um, financial instability that happens when parents are in prison, right? They're, they're in prison. They're, they can't be supporting their family financially. Um, and there's been, you know, some look at 54% uh, of incarcerated parents said they were the primary financial support for their children prior to incarceration. So, you know, the ways that also adds to poverty and, you know, potentially having to move to a different, you know, cheaper rent, right? Like all those other factors that they come in. So with that instability, you've got the financial factors for kids and the financial factors that even return when the parent is out of prison. And I'm sure you've had other conversations around, right, the, the difficulty finding jobs or things like that and how that continues to impact families. Um, but there's also can be a lot of instability um, with recidivism. So if a parent is, you know, in and out, um, the way that just kind of the uncertainty that that brings, like, is my parent going to be here? Are they not going to be here? Um, and um, another factor that really connects to, you know, this lack of family stability is some of the secrecy around parental incarceration. Um, so, you know, there has been um, in some of my own work with kids and families, um, really hearing that the that the secrecy around incarceration often happens in two ways. One, the child doesn't know, or two, the child knows and doesn't tell others. So when the child doesn't know, sometimes kids are told things like, you know, oh, your dad's in, uh, in the army, or oh, they're away at college, um, or, you know, just they're away for work. And so, um, or they, they're told not the full story. And, and we can talk more about this later. You know, I think it's really important that kids are given um, developmentally appropriate, honest information. Um, you know, and so when you're told something like, oh, he's away at work, then it becomes like this choice that they're not seeing me rather than the fact that it's a system that doesn't let them see me. Um, and that can get really internalized. So secrecy around it or a side story, but I, I remember um, when I was a school counselor having a kindergarten parent that told me, um, you know, that the on the the parent intake information form they listed dad dead, um, but the dad was really in prison. And me thinking like, you know, I I never want to tell you how to be a parent, but that's going to be really hard for that child later on when they realize their dad was not dead. Um, so 
secrecy around it, um, you know, can be there within families. Um, but also if the child knows that, you know, not, and it's, we don't talk about this, um, then that can also be really isolating, um, which kind of leads to the, the, the last big area that I really look at, which is just the stigma um, and the way that that connects to shame. Um, and so when we think about like mental health, stigma and shame are really key factors and just, you know, self-concept and wellness and things like that. But because incarceration is so stigmatized, um, there's often this lack of social acceptance that happens for these kids. Um, you know, some of the, the, the teachers or the educators of like, you know, well, well, look at their family, right? Like the, just the judgments that are given to kids um, and to families when this happened or, you know, just kind of this mindset, well, you know, it's that child's, you know, mother's in prison, they're not far behind. Like that kind of dialogue, which is not true, um, but gets labels put on people, like that's really harmful. Um, and so, you know, we know that there is so much stigma around incarceration and that's going to impact the kids and the families as a whole and the ways that they're you know, talking about it, accessing resources, accessing supports, um, things like that. I think all of those are interesting. And I'm glad you brought up the idea of like secrecy, because I don't know if it's ever like registered in my mind of like, that's exactly what that was of, um, and the impact that can have on a child, because I'm thinking just from experiences of people that I have known, um, when I was younger, who had parents that were incarcerated, they would say things like that. But in reality, their parent was incarcerated. And, you know, just thinking about the impact that that has on a child and their mental health and their relationship and all those other different things there, like that's, that's a lot for a child to take on at such a young age or however old they are when they find out that their parent is actually incarcerated. And I'm, and then you also have this element of stigma and shame that they have to deal with um, because of just being associated with someone that is incarcerated. And I don't know if there's more to this, but how are they supposed to navigate these experiences um, of not being socially accepted, of uh, grief, of all these different things that are that come with having an incarcerated parent? So, how are, they, yeah, how are they supposed to get through this? Yeah, that's a really big question. And, you know, and it is going to be individual, right? Like everyone has different ways of coping and different things that are going to help them. You know, I think one of the most important factors for kids and really anyone for health and wellness is positive social relationships and positive connections. And so, you know, having someone that they feel um, that's a trusted other um, friend, adult, um, that they can talk about this. Um, and so I, I really, you know, I, when I think of the family work, I think it's creating an environment where we can talk about it and we can be sad together and we can miss them together and we can acknowledge that we miss them and that it's complicated, right? That we can acknowledge that, that both and, you know, I'm sad and disappointed that this happened um, and I'm maybe mad at them um, for, you know, for, for what they did or, or whatever, just the complexity of it, I think is really important and kind of moving through that healing process. Um, so, you know, recognizing you're not alone because society has silenced this so much and it is so stigmatized, you know, even within families. Um, and so, you know, I think finding those connections, um, you know, for, for families to kind of model like, you know, we can talk about it, we can acknowledge what has happened. Um, and we can really look at, 
you know, the strengths of our family, um, that we do care about each other, that we want the best for each other, right? Like kind of building on those things, I think is going to be really important. Um, you know, and, and for a lot of kids, it is, you know, I, I think about this as, you know, some of these like, um, with our grief work, right? Like we used to talk about grief as like the five stages. And that's probably where a lot of like, you know, pop culture still talks about grief, but that's, that's really not the, the best way I think to think about grief. Cause it's not necessarily a stage. Um, I think more about how we navigate grief is thinking about how do we make meaning out of it? Um, you know, and so really looking at, um, sometimes, you know, we, we, again, talk about like, I can be grieving and I can't, it's okay to like, laugh, right? Like the kind of the, 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 the complexity of feelings, but how do I make meaning of my experience? How am I going, um, you know, to be able to reflect on this and look at how I've grown from this or, you know, have this time where I'm just really sad and trying to understand who I am as, you know, a teenager with, a, a you know, a mom or a dad that's not around and I'm not getting to see them. Um, and so that, that meaning making, I do think is also really important for some of the, the healing and the navigating. And that makes a lot of sense of because grief is hard and I understand that. Um, but I think when you change the perspective of it in a way like that, it can be so much more impactful and it can be so much more powerful, especially for a population like this and the circumstances of their lives. And um, I know like one of the things that I probably people are thinking like, OK, yes, kids are they have hard times, but like, why do we care about? these particular kids or this particular issue. And I think one thing is that what we're seeing is parental incarceration has a direct impact on like well-being. Um, and uh, there are a lot of negative consequences of having a parent incarcerated. So I was wondering, could you just elaborate some on that? Like, what are some of these consequences and how is it impacting well-being? Yeah, you know, I alluded to earlier is that children with a parent in prison are also more likely to have other adverse childhood experiences. Um, they're more likely to have also lived in a home with things like domestic violence or parental substance use or parental mental illness or experienced parental death and things like that. And what we know is that when a lot of those multiple factors are there, there's more likely um, a chance for trauma um, and trauma impacts brain development, um, you know, all, all those health and wellness. Um, so, you know, specifically for children with incarcerated parents, I, we are concerned because of just the, the overlapping nature of a lot of these factors for them. Um, and I want to be really clear that the research does not say that having a parent in prison causes these other factors, right? Like that it is, it is way more complex. And I never, I, you know, there, there is no causation in the research, but we do see correlations and we see things like kids who have a parent in prison are more likely than um, their peers to have things like problems at school um, or lower school engagement. They are more likely to have been suspended or expelled from school. Um, you know, there have been even some studies that have hinted at like they're more likely to drop out of school or to not complete college. And so that has long lasting impacts on, you know, attainment and, um, you know, things like that, um, economically, occupationally. Um, they're also more likely um, to 
um, you know, have risk factors around, again, mental health and wellness. So there, there's, you know, some research that talks about more likely to experience anxiety or depression. Um, and so things like that say that, you know, if this is a, as a group of kids, and again, like 5 million of them, um, that are more likely to have these other factors, like we got to pay attention to that. Um, you know, there, there, I was, um, I'm going to remember the sources I say this, but, you know, looking at like, if we really talked about parental incarceration as a public health issue, this would be the number two public health issue for kids behind asthma. Um, you know, and so really thinking of it in that way as, as parental incarceration is this big umbrella that has a lot of other problems and factors for the kids that have experienced this. And again, it's so silenced that we've got to talk about it and look at it more and say, yes, we need prison reform. And another reason why we need it is because it's impacting so many kids with long lasting impacts here. Great point. Um, that's one of the things like I've just been thinking about in general when it comes to reentry or uh, incarceration. This is a public health issue. This is a issue that impacts not only the individual, but the communities, the families. And when you're thinking about children, it's the same thing. It's a uh, it's a community problem and it's going to impact the families that are around them, the communities that they're in or anybody else that they're involved in. So I, I think that's a really good point of like, it is a public health issue and it's something that we need to start addressing. And before we move into ways of which we can address this, um, I want to ask you, is there anything else that we should be considering when we're talking about experiences of children with incarcerated parents or impacts of parental incarceration? You know, I, I mentioned earlier just the um, the ways that um, it is often not talked about, um, you know, and really thinking about um, the ways that, and I think you alluded to this earlier, but I just really want to highlight it again, the ways that it can be kind of internalized of like, that's what's going on. Um, and, you know, I think when we're, we're sometimes talking about like the, the facts, right? Like we might not have as many like numbers and statistics to point to that internalization factor, um, because that is a really like deeply personal journey and identity and things like that. Um, but it, it's also just a part of this, right? Like that, that internal experience is not always like the research to, you know, I, I don't have a number on that, but just that internal experience. I, I want to really, um, honor for the ways that so many children, um, you know, millions of children are navigating this journey um, alongside their families, alongside both their incarcerated parents and other caregivers and people that really care about them. Um, and so there is there is such broad impact in ways that's not always tangible. Great. Yes, those and that I feel like that's great information to add on there. And I guess as we're moving on in our conversation and we're talking, we've talked about the needs, we've talked about um, some of the concerns around, you know, children with incarcerated parents, and it's only right for us to talk about how to address these needs. Um, so I guess when we're thinking about the various levels and granted, I don't expect for you to know everything for these levels, but when we're thinking about these levels of, you know, policy practices, um, being community members, teachers, um, how can we address these needs? 
Yeah, you know, a lot of my work and research has really been in educational settings um, and, you know, as a mental health professional. So that I'm, I'm just going to acknowledge that is the lens that I am coming from um, as we talk about this. So, you know, I, I, I'm going to, again, go back to the importance of relationships. Um, you know, when I think what can we do, it's that all adults most adults would say they care about kids, um, you know, and so how do we make that like really tangible? Um, and it is showing up, it is showing acceptance, it is not judging. Um, and it is, you know, doing that in a really authentic way. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's having those supportive relationships in your own family, in your classroom, um, in your community, things like that for kids. Um, and I think, you know, with when we show up with acceptance, it's not pitying others too, because that's not authentic or going to, you know, be helpful. Um, you know, so it's, it's really just that acknowledgement that this is the experience we can talk about it, you know, and I'm following the child's lead. Like if I'm having a, a conversation with a child that has a parent in prison, like I don't need to know the details. I just need to know that that's their experience and that I need to connect with them as a human being. Um, and all human beings are worthy of respect, um, and honoring and, um, and, so, you know, so I think that, is a, a way that just like at a basic human level, something we can do. Um, and then, you know, where we go in policy and practice, it's it's the criminal justice system to have a reckoning as well with the ways they're incarcerating people, like obviously, but then also the ways that it is impacting families. Um, you know, it's thinking about what are visitation policies? How do I have waiting rooms that are going to allow for a kid to sit on their dad's lap or to give their mom a hug? You know, how can I make them more child friendly? Um, thinking about where incarcerated parents are incarcerated, right? Are they in a state or federal prison that's really far from their family, because if so, transportation is a huge barrier to getting to see them or have access to them. Um, there has been some really uh, innovative work in New York State from the Osborne Foundation or Osborne Association, um, where they have um, really given opportunities for virtual visits with parents and kids. Um, and I think that is huge and other states need to follow suit on that. And so again, that's like a policy and practice piece for kids that are separated from parents because when we go back to one of the big things they experience is that change in relationship and contact. And so how do we fight that? It's we've got to change policies and make it more accessible for parent kids to have contact with their parents. Um, you know, I think in schools, it's, it's policies around, um, you know, absences or when the child doesn't have a signed permission form because the parent is in jail and they are the, the legal guardian that can sign things. Like how do we, how do we connect with, um, you know, our, our, whether it's a school resource officer, which has a different conversation or, you know, or things like that. Like how are we connecting with people who can have access um, to the families to still involve them in their child's learning and care? Um, you know, and then uh, obviously like some of the reform at a school level too has to be around um, discipline issues um, and really recognizing the ways that having a parent that's incarcerated can be traumatic for kids and part of trauma responses can be this emotional dysregulation, which may show up as what is often labeled misbehavior, but is really a trauma symptom. Um, and so having reform there, again, that's a whole other conversation, but I think that that has got to be looped in when we're looking at this and we create change in these different systems. It's how we really 
understand these experiences and what do we do with it? And I think those can be some really tangible ways of having more trauma-informed schools um, that can be a part of this puzzle and looking together and bringing service providers together. And another thing I was wondering as you were you were talking and you were going through those um, is when you're in the school settings, how to, and I don't know if you can answer this or not, but how to reduce that stigma that the children encounter, either whether it's from their peers or whether it's from um, their teachers. What what do we do about that? Like what, how is that addressed? Yeah, that's really big. And again, a part of kind of this national conversation, I think around how we're, we're talking about it, you know, a, a lot of my work has really been around educating educators, um, you know, and so having conversations, it's, it's drawing it to light. Um, and it's reminding them things like, um, you know, the be aware of your bias, right? Like we, we all have that bias, I think, when we hear, you know, that someone's in jail, like there's this you know, unconscious or not kind of, you know, idea that kind of goes through our head about what that is and means. Um, and so, you know, I think part of accepting others is like working to kind of fight against that bias and change that narrative. Um, and so I think that's part of the work that all teachers really need to be doing and educators, you know, just anyone working um, with with kids in this space. It's, it's how do I, um, how do I do my own work around that, uh, my own kind of stigma work. Um, you know, and then I think just, you know, bringing awareness um, to them, I think with thinking about, you know, when a child has a parent in prison, like that is definitely a family's like personal decision, whether they're going to disclose that to the school. And I think it's understandable when they don't, because of all these things we've talked about, because of the stigma that can be there. Um, and yet I would also think that, um, you know, part of kind of building empathy and awareness for kids uh, is letting it not be such a huge secret. And so navigating that, I think, can be really tricky. Um, and so, right, like we're going to disclose things to people when we feel safe. Um, and so I think it's for the teachers and educators, it's how do I build safety and relationship and connection with all the kids' families, um, you know, in order to be someone that can be trusted with that information um, and, you know, and honored and respected. And I think that is so noteworthy of, you know, just education and awareness, because I feel like a lot of it, what it comes down to, to really examine those biases and um, to alter or change them, it, it it comes down to what are your biases when you hear this word or when you hear incarceration or you're around these certain type of people. And I think, like you said, it's just we have to continue to bring awareness. We have to continue to educate people. Um, and I know one of the things that I'm just really big on is like language and how we use that language. And I think the same thing applies here with children. Um, it can be, some of the language that we use can be kind of harsh and um, stigmatizing. And I think that's one way as, as a part of our training and stuff that will really help out and kind of um, mitigate some of the stigma that they encounter. And I guess one of the things I want to, I guess, go on to another thing, a part of suggestions and recommendations is just, are there any national resources that are available for families or community members or people who just want to learn more about children with incarcerated parents? Yeah, so a few of my favorite resources. One, Sesame Street has these amazing, amazing community toolkits 
And so there's a Sesame Street toolkit for the topic of parental incarceration. And so this would be really a great resource for caregivers of younger children, like maybe, you know, three through somewhat elementary school, um, because there are some Muppets that are like talking about it, singing about it, acknowledging their feelings about it. And it has some really great resources um, on that website for the kids, for the caregivers and for other educators and adults. So with young kids, I think that would be a great resource. I mean, there's some there's some great just books and your, you know, your public library would probably have some of those. Um, there's some about like visiting day, um, and, you know, and so just kind of having conversations, right? Like how do we talk about it with kids? I think sometimes using other books or other resources like that can be a really powerful way to open up that dialogue um, and acknowledge that you're not alone. Another um, resource that I think is really amazing and doing great work is Project Avery, A-V-A-R-Y. And Project Avery, it started you know, in the Bay Area in California, but they now have a nationwide program for kids ages 8 to 18, where they can participate in like peer support groups with a uh, kind of youth counselor. So another kind of um, kid that has gone through the program and an adult. And um, it, it, any kid can sign up. And so um, that is that has really just opened up in the past couple of years. I don't know whether they were doing it pre-COVID or maybe that was a you know thing of the pandemic and realizing how we can have these um, this nationwide program. But that would be something that um, you know the child has to know that they have an incarcerated parent to participate. Um, but that's a great support network because again, it's so isolating, you know. And so to say I'm not alone in this can be really powerful. And they definitely do some work around you know talking about kind of the grief that goes with it, the stigma that goes with it, um, and coping in those ways. Um, I referenced earlier the Osborne Association, and they, um, again, a lot out of New York, but they have some really great resource guides for caregivers and for other educators um, and for policymakers, um, you know, so ch child welfare workers, things like that, like that are part of this conversation. So that's a resource that I definitely go to as well. A few years ago, there was a, an organization called the San Francisco Children of Incarcerated Parent Partnership, and they have, I think, since closed their doors. But one of the, the resources that they developed that I, I found is actually still listed on the Project Avery website was the Bill of Rights for Children of Incarcerated Parents. And so that was just really written as this kind of policy and practice document of how do we think about the rights of kids? Um, and no state guarantees these rights, but it's things like I have a right to have access to my parent. I have a right to be treated with dignity and respect. I have a right to have people that you know understand where I'm coming from. I'm kind of paraphrasing some of those. Um, but that would just be a resource that I would encourage anyone to, to look up, look at, um, and just thinking about how we're engaging with kids um, and as we're making decisions, as we're moving forward. Um, so those are some of, I mean, there, there's a lot more out there, but those are some of my favorites that I feel like I go back to, um, you know, just again, some of those books, some of the um, you know, the resources that are out there. There are several other national organizations that are doing work in this space. Um, and uh, one of them, make sure I get it right, um, has even kind of put together a list of maybe some scholarship opportunities for kids that have parents in prison. And so thinking, I mean, they're few and far between, but thinking about that right there as, you know, how do we change access for kids for post-secondary opportunities um, when they're facing things like, you know, the financial um, 
risk of things um, when there's a change in that. And so that um, there, the National Resource Center on Children and Families of the Incarcerated, and that's out of Rutgers University, they have really put together this list of resources, but that includes the scholarship information. So I'll give you that link um, for, for your listeners as well. Um, but, you know, recognizing that there are some places and, and groups that are really kind of putting together that are trying to be, you know, innovative and effective for kids. Um, and really a lot of that's, again, around information and thinking about the kind of support atmosphere that we can create for kids and families. Thank you for sharing all that. That was very helpful. And I think one of the things I am going to do for my audience listeners is to put those links in the bottom. That way they can have access to that information. But if I can just kind of recap what uh, I've heard, what I'm hearing here is a lot of as far as the recommendations um, and things that we can do to kind of address these needs, definitely positive role models. So whether that's serving as a mentor for a child um, or being a supportive family member, um, positive environments and creating kind of safe spaces to have these conversations and allow children to have understanding of incarceration, what that looks like and how it will look in their family, um, as well as I will say the Sesame Street uh, resource is actually amazing. I have the app on my phone and um, it's very useful. It has a lot of information on there. So if there are families that are needing are struggling to, you know, get their kids to understand it, I really do encourage it. And it's something you can just download on your phone and you can kind of click and go through. And like she said, they have videos. Um, but there's a plethora of other resources, like you said. So I'm hearing books. Um, I also have a list of books that um, I have in my, in just a drive of some that I have read. So I will make sure that I link those in the bottom and um, some national organizations. And I will just put all that in the bottom uh, of the description box as well. But what I'm, overall, what I have heard is definitely creating those spaces to have these conversations, positive role models, um, and then just empathy and um, awareness training and all these different things to kind of further address these needs. Um, is there anything else that we should be considering here when we're talking about or working with children with incarcerated parents? Yeah, so I, th I think just, you know, the other kind of final reminders and things to consider, I, I said this earlier, is just, um, you know, as we're, yeah, as we're supporting kids in these different ways, you know, whether it's reading books or having just these things, it's again about having the conversations with kids. Um, and so I'm thinking, you know, as as parents um, that may you know be in prison or that are reentering, um, how do we acknowledge what has happened in our family and move forward, um, you know, and how do we maybe start to have some, you know, different relationships, like the relationship pre-incarceration, during incarceration, after incarceration may look really different, um, especially when we think about like the time that, you know, that um, has passed across that, um, just the dynamics, the way that that incarcerated parent might have been thought of or talked about by other caregivers, like all of that can impact relationships. Um, you know, but I, but I think that it's, it's how do we, again, have conversation and how do we 
bring it to light um, so that it can be addressed. I think that would be one of the you know, kind of things to, to add to the conversation that may not have been talked about quite as much before. I like that. I like that. And that goes to me asking you the question that we ask most, well, all the guests on the show is, uh, you know, as we're closing out our conversation and we've talked about a lot, we've talked about needs, we've talked about impact, we've talked about trends, and we've talked about recommendations and suggestions. But if our audience was to take one thing from this entire conversation, what is it that you want to leave them off with or un have an understanding of? Yeah, I, you know, that's, again, a big question. And, and thinking about this, you know, I, I really, I, I think I would go back to just the, um, the ways that we can all be part of the, the solution. Um, we can all be a part of the support. Um, and that all of us have, um, you know, a kind of responsibility and obligation, I think, to um, to kids um, and in creating um, safe spaces. And whether, again, whether that's in families, in our communities, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, um, you know, in all of these different places, how do we really take um, our own kind of responsibility and ownership of creating safety, of treating all with dignity, um, of, you know, doing the work to address some of the bias that's there in this conversation. Um, and they really, you know, just have the eyes on the spotlight on the impact that incarceration has on kids and how they are so often left out of that national conversation around this. And I think that's a very important note. And that's a great way to end because um, that's something we all need to be aware of is that we all can be a part of the solution. Um, so Dr. Brown, I really do appreciate you coming on our show and, you know, sharing your expertise, your knowledge. I know you have a wealth of experience working with children incarcerated, with incarcerated parents. So I'm just so grateful to have you, to have had you on here to share like your knowledge and um, just your experience. Thanks so much. I enjoyed our, our conversation as well. And Thank you guys for tuning in with us. And if you wanted to know more information about Dr. Brown, her research, or just any ideas that she has, I will make sure I put her Twitter um, at name in the description box as well. I will also add any additional resources that we have related to children with incarcerated parents in the description box. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to push the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and more like the reentry podcast. Thank you.